1: Welcome to Dress, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April
0: Callahan. Cass, if I may, today I would like to start off today's episode with a quote from the designer that we are covering today, who has stated in the past in the press that quote, I see conditions today like this anonymity, universality, unisex, nudity as a fact, not a kick, and all about reality. By reality, I mean the use of real things, blue jeans, polo shirts, t-shirts, overalls. Status fashion is gone. What remains? Something I am obliged to call authenticity. Comfort is the rationale. Good looks deriving more from the person than the clothes. The clothes are merely an instrument for the individual's
1: own body message. And if that sounds like an exact description of the oh so recent trend known as Normcore. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, Normcore.
1: So, you know, mom jeans with a t shirt and dad sneakers thrown together with a hoodie and a backpack. Let us give you a little surprise in your day dress listener that these words were uttered actually not today, but exactly. 50 years ago in 1971, by one of fashion's great visionaries, one of my all time favorite designers, Rudy Gernreich.
0: Today, I think that Cash, you and I can both agree that if our listeners do not already know of this designer, Rudy Gernreich, this episode is going to be a little bit revelatory because Rudy was at once beloved and maligned. He was outrageous, but also prescient. He was a minimalist, but somehow at the same time, very much a maximalist. As a person, he was kind of this, and a designer, he was kind of this enigma wrapped in a riddle, and he was a thinker far, far ahead of his time. So when
1: I say Rudy Gernrich, what immediately comes to your mind, Cass? Well, his name might sound familiar to our listeners because we did mention Rudy on our swimsuit episode a couple seasons back, um, he designed the first, arguably the first, one of the first thong underwear versions mm-hmm. <laughs> since the 70s, 60s and 70s. But I mean, there's so, so many things that come to mind when we talk about Rudy. I mean, his, his shocking use of blinding color, his op art prints, his clothing, often incorporated see-through colored vinyl inserts. And he was so fond of cutouts what may have been a short mini shift, which already raised an eyebrow or two in the 1960s, for instance, was made all the more shocking by cutouts on each side of the torso revealing the skin below. I mean, so many things. <laughs> I know, right? And and he also had this penchant for
0: stiletto vinyl thigh-high boots, you know, what we would kind of think of as like stripper boots now. Um, but at the same time, he also created buttoned-up traditional menswear-inspired tailoring for women, but it always kind of had this twist. Think about this in conjunction with what he was saying about kind of like that normcore look, you know, so he, he, he is this enigma, you know, he was never boring, he was never dull,
1: and his clothes always had something to say. And today we are so pleased to be joined by our friend, Alexander Joseph, Chief Storyteller at the Fashion Institute of Technology, who joins us to delve deeper into the career of the oft misunderstood genius that was Rudy Gernreich. Alex, welcome to Dressed. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm so so honored.
0: Yeah, of course, of course. And today, of course, we're going to speak about Rudy Gernrich. And before we go any further, I just want to point out that it's Rudy Gernreich, not Gern Reich. Yes, because apparently I have been saying this incorrectly for a very long time.
2: Well, Mary Lou Luther makes this point. She interviewed him for her book, for the Rudy Gernrick book. She's a, Mary Lou Luther is a journalist, and she made this point that he corrected her and said it's Gernrich. And that's what he says on Batman, which is a show that was pre-recorded and taped and everything and rehearsed. So you know that that's how he wanted it said. But I would put a little footnote on this, which is that in 2000 or somewhere around there, Harry Hay, his boyfriend, who we'll talk probably mention in the show, was interviewed about him and he referred to him as Rudy Gernreich. So I don't know what to do with that, but just throwing it in there. Maybe he changed it. Maybe he changed it in the 50s because that's how he wanted to be known. Yeah. I'm just that, But I'm making that up. I don't know exactly.
0: Right. I, but we're going to call him Rick for the purposes yeah,
2: of our episode. That's what he today. wanted to be known as. Yeah.
0: Would you tell us a little bit about what were the highlights of Rudy's career? What What did he mean to the history of American fashion? Because I think we're going to go through a lot of these points by point as we go on through the episode, but he really meant so much to contemporary fashion today.
2: There are sort of three things that I think about with Rudy Gernrich, two about the career, and one about sort of not about the career. The first is is sort of interesting paradox to me. I I love paradoxes, but if you think about most designers, most fashion designers, their most famous things, the most famous things they make are things that you know, enter the real world and become real objects and influence fashion. But with Rudy Gernrich, the most remarkable thing he did is something that didn't happen. So those of you who don't know, Rudy Gernrich's most famous garment was a topless bathing suit. And it was made in 1964. It was enormously newsworthy. But last I went to the beach, women were still wearing tops.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I pointed it at myself and I was like, not me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, you know, I think you go to like Fire Island, you can be naked. Yeah. And actually, you actually, you have the right to be topless in, in New York, in Manhattan. Yeah.
0: You can actually walk down the street as a woman and be topless because it's part of gender equality laws within New York City.
2: And it should be that way. And yet, um, uh, it, it still is not something that, it's not a societal change that has come to pass. So I think it's kind of interesting that this was his most famous uh, garment, his most sig- like his signature piece. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say about him as a designer, and we can talk more about this, but he was really interesting to me because this is not a designer who is really into the craft of making clothing. So many designers are, and you find sort of the meaning of what they did through that craft. But Rudy Gernrich was really not that person. He was... Um, he was really interested in the promotion of clothing and the messages that the clothing was sending. So he was, he was uh, friends with Eleanor Lambert. And I think early on, Eleanor Lambert was a famous publicist. So he was early, even in the fifties before he was a sort of a name, he was trying to figure out how to get the news about the clothing out so that he could, you know, talk to the press. He was very good at talking to the press. So that would be the, the other thing about him. He was very good at publicity and promotion. Um, and maybe, you know, now I think designers are more that way. You know, they became, they've become more that way. Um, they're very conscious of their message. But I think at the time that was a fresh way of thinking about it. And then the last thing I would just say is that he played this very, very tiny, like almost footnote but I would say very important role in gay rights, the gay rights movement in the United States. We could talk about that, but just remember that he did have this, just this one moment. I mean, it was just one moment, but it was an important moment in which he said yes to gay rights.
0: Yeah. Later he said
2: no. And I definitely want
0: to ask you about that here in a second. But before we get to that, just so we can kind of like stay on kind of like a biographical timeline, Hmm. what can you tell us a little bit about Rudy's early life? And you know so much more about him than I do, but I I do know that he had more than a few traumatic experiences kind of like early on in his life.
2: His father committed suicide. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one really seems to know why. Um, Rudy was about eight years old. Rudy was born in 1922 in Vienna. And the mother was in the industry uh, and the father, I think also it ran a hosiery factory, but the father committed suicide by gunshot on a golf course. These details are provided by a friend who worked in Rudy Gernrich's studio in the later in the 60s. But no one really seems to know why, but I would just, that I think is significant. And of course, it's your father. Your father commits suicide, you're eight years old. But also I wonder if and this is me speculating, there was a strain of melancholy in, in His I didn't speak to anyone. I mean, I emailed with Lane Nielsen, who was a, who worked in his studio in the 60s and 70s. But it would be interesting to know if people knew him. And I think you're having another person who knew Gernrick on later this week. Uh, maybe find out, did he have a strain of melancholy? I think he was known for having a stormy personality. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah. And and also, like, you know, you mentioned um, the year he was born, and he was in Vienna, and World War Two was a Bruin. Yes. So
2: when he was 16, Nazi Germany annexed uh, Austria, and soon after that, he and his family very luckily got out. They got out so just in time, right? They were very assimilated Jews, and they went and lived in, in Los Angeles. There was a community of, of assimilated Jews there. And I want to say that Otto Preminger was among them, but I might be. Otto Preminger was a film director. Mm, yes. um, he may have been among them, but certainly there was, there was some connection to the film community, which was a very Jewish uh, community in L.A. in the late 30s. So they got out. They they did get out just in time. But I'm sure they this I'd never saw in print. But I I'm gonna imagine they had relatives who did not make it out. Yeah. So
0: well, even just having to flee your country for your life at that point is a traumatic experience. Obviously, and there's millions and millions and millions of people around the world that are still going through that type of experience.
2: Yeah, they were they were refugees.
0: Yeah. So um, they settle in L.A. And you mentioned the film community, which I'm I'm so delighted you just lead me right into my next question <laughs> that I want to ask you, because um, Rudy studied art when he was growing up and when he was in high school. And then a little bit later, he did even a brief stint in working under the renowned Hollywood costume designer, Edith Head. Can you tell us a little bit more about his time working in the Hollywood studio system?
2: I you know I don't know I don't think he saw he is credited with anything except a couple of movies by Otto Preminger. I don't know what it was like working with Edith Head. I don't think I think I read somewhere that he just hated uh, his time in the in Hollywood. Um, I don't think he was good at collaborating with other people. It's his idea or nothing. This is me again. That's me speculating. Mm-hmm. But he did do a couple of things. He did. If anyone has seen. Interestingly enough, Exodus, uh, which is an Otto Preminger film. He did even Maurice Saint's clothes for that. But if you really want to see his clothes in action, you have to watch this dreadful movie that um, <laughs> Otto Preminger made called Skidoo. I mean, it's it's worth seeing. I, mean, I, think, I think film historians have looked at the film since it got made and said, you know what? This thing is so weird. Everyone's got to see it, even though it's terrible. I mean, it involves it's a musical. It's got Carol Channing, every actor in the world, since me Groucho Marx, Carol Channing, who was also a private client for Rudy Gernrich, Jackie Gleason. Um, I'm not going to remember all the people that were in this movie.
0: I mean, mashing all these people up together seems like a strange melange already. Yes.
2: <laughs> it's it's a crazy, crazy movie. And the the most interesting clothes I think are worn by a model. Her name, and I'm going to say her name was Luna. Is that her name? Um, she was a, um, I believe, African American. Oh,
0: Danielle model. Luna.
2: Yes, yes. Yes. She wears these little capelets and things. Very Rudy Gernwick. So, oh,
0: interesting. I had no idea that she was doing film. And actually, we do have a planned episode or a mini-sode on her coming up later this season. Cool. So, well, yeah. And just to clarify, at this time, he was kind of working more, or at least under head, he was working more as a fashion illustrator, right? Not necessarily like a technician or a fabricator of the clothing, because as you already mentioned, he he wasn't necessarily so much interested in that part of
2: fashion. No, he had a, a friend, and I and I think a relative would make manufacture the clothes for him. And when he first started getting into the industry, she would make the clothes, not him. Uh, he was a sketcher. He was a he could draw things. He could communicate his ideas beautifully by sketching. But the technicians, the technical side. For him, it just wasn't there, I don't think.
0: Yeah. Well, and also, um, you know, in your work that dance and movement are really these consistent themes in Rudy's work. Would you tell us a little bit more about this interest in dance and also the surprising path that dance kind of led to in terms of his work as an activist in the 1950s?
2: He became really obsessed, I think, with Martha Graham uh, in modern dance in the late 30s, early 40s. And he started to take an interest in dancing himself. So he joined this troupe called the Lester Horton Dance Company. And they did, he did their costumes. Mm-hmm. So early Rudy Gernrichs are visible on the dancers. And it's weird because they're actually, they're, there's some sort of, pre-saging or pre-facing of some of the work that he did later in the 60s, like these sort of cutout shapes over some of the dancers' breasts. They were wild, wacky clothes. And and this is kind of interesting. I don't know how much you can really make of this. I, you, I could, you could probably overstate it, but I think that he probably learned a lot about how clothing should be made so that people can move around in them. And And again, I think you can overstate this, but I always think about how Chanel would have the the models walk up and down because she wanted them to have this freedom to move. Right. Um, and I don't know if that's an apocryphal story or idea, but it's sort of, you could connect it. Like Gernrich also wants the woman to have this kind of freedom to move mm-hmm. about. And anyway, so the Lester Horton dance company was, as they would say in the fifties, you know, the the pinko kami crowd ran through <laughs> scripts, a lot of, uh, Uh, what would then be called homosexual men and probably women as well in this troupe. So um, it's then that uh, Gernrick meets Harry Hay. And so the next chapter comes into view.
0: And who was Harry Hay?
2: The, the reason I got interested in, in Gernrich was because of Harry Hay, because I didn't know anything about Rudy Gernrich, but I knew who Harry Hay was, and there was this conference that was coming up, and they asked for papers, and I thought, well, I know Harry, there was a Harry Hay conference at CUNY, and they said, who, who's got something new and fresh to say about Harry Hay? And I thought, well, I'm in the, fa- I was getting my master's degree in fashion textile studies, and I thought, well, probably nobody in the Harry Hay world knows anything about Rudy Gernrich, um, and I was right. They all were kind of, wow, who knew? So, Harry Hay was a communist sympathizer. He was working in Hollywood doing little bit parts in movies, and he his boyfriend briefly was a guy named Will Gear, who became Grandpa Walton on the Waltons. and the uh, Will Gear introduced Harry Hay to the Communist Party, and Harry Hay became a teacher. They had like pods where they would sort of teach communist um, pods, meaning like groups of people. and Hay was a powerful and influential teacher of communist, whatever you going to call it, orthodoxy, let's say. And one day, Harry Hay went to the Lester Horton Dance Company and laid eyes on Rudy Gernrich and said, I thought he was the most beautiful person I had ever met in my entire life, something like that, the most beautiful man I'd ever laid eyes on or something like that. So Hay was, at the time, trying to circulate a petition to organize gay men uh, to, um, and now I'm not going to remember the political candidate they were behind. Was it George Wallace? Yes. I think it was George Wallace they were trying to organize behind. And he was trying to organize gay men into this group. This was radical. You have to understand, like, this is 1950. This is 19 years before Stonewall. This was a radical idea. And he was trying to find someone. Everybody said no to this. Like, no, you, this, no, you can't organize gay men. Gay men were still being arrested um, in, in, in public restrooms because cops would sort of ensnare them. They would sort of, you know, give them a come-on look, and then it's the minute you returned that look, they could arrest you. And men were put in prison for this and committed suicide. Their careers were ruined because of gestures like this. So um, Hay was taking this petition around trying to get guys to sign it. And everyone was like, no, no, I don't want have anything to do with that. But he showed it to Rudy Gernrich. And this is this is interesting. Uh, Gernrich said, you know, this is the most dangerous idea I've ever seen. And I'm with you 100%. <laughs> so th- that in and of itself, I think, gives Rudy Gernrich uh, an important role to play in gay rights because from this partnership comes what was called the Mattachine Society. Yeah. Ah, uh, the Mattachine Society. I think was probably not the first gay rights organization. There probably were others before, but it was it was significant because they won a court case against one of these entrapment stories. Yeah. So Mattachine when started with this group of friends, all these men became friends, and you if you go to the UCLA archive, the Rudy Gernrich archive, you can see. Uh, Rudy Gernrich's notebook where he kept notes of all the things that they said, or the, the subjects they would have like conversations about topics, like is what is is camping, you know, acting queenie, is that really a positive thing or is it a negative thing? And Rudy Gernrich suggested that they have a um a newsletter that they call their newsletter the Gaily Homo journal mm-hmm. instead of the the Daily Home Journal. <laughs> So he was kind of important in that way, but then this thing didn't last, and their their relationship didn't last. Mm -hmm. They broke up, I think, like two years later or something like that. It didn't last very long, but it was significant, and Mattachine's became significant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I was well familiar with Mattachine well before I read your thesis, so I was like, like, oh, this is a surprise turn and twist.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like they... Actually, I found a reference in 1968, so before Stonewall, the writer Edmund White, novelist Edmund White, actually referred to the Mattachine Society as R-N-A-A-C-P. So, so that's sort of, I think, a test to how um, their influence was really quite noted by the yeah. end of the 60s. But they had booted Harry Hay out because they didn't want to have anything to do with the communists. Like, communism, that was out there. Um, it was, being gay was out there enough, I think.
0: They didn't want to double down. And I, was, I would also argue that Mattachine kind of like laid the foundation for ACT UP and like so many other organizations that followed later.
2: Yeah. Well, hey, Harry Hay, you know, it's interesting, like Harry Hay is, is a controversial character because, but, but one thing that I think he really contributed sort of almost accidentally, but I think this is a powerful idea, is the idea of the game person as a, as a minority that really didn't exist. I don't think, before Harry Hay came along and, and proposed it. And it, once you have that idea, that's a very powerful idea. In a democracy, a minority should be a, deserves protected status. So that that really helped, I think, with activism later down the road. But then Rudy Guernic never really acknowledges being gay again after 1953, which is interesting. He goes into the industry. You and I both know. Everybody listening to this broadcast is probably aware. The fashion industry itself is very conservative.
0: Yes, yes. And we're going to take a very brief sponsor break right here, but we're going to hear more from Alex when we come back. Welcome back, dress listeners. So, Alex, you know, we've already discussed the fact that Gernwick never learned how to cut, drape, or sew per se, that his interests in fashion were kind of leaning more to the theoretical. Um, So how did he parlay his dance career into the world of high fashion? Because this is, this is a whole thing.
2: (laughs) I don't really know how, if he parlayed it into a career. I know what he did was he started coming to New York and um, sort of pitching himself and pitching his clothes, which again, were made by someone else to buyers at places like Lord and & Taylor, and um, he showed them to Diana Vreeland at Vogue, and she she spotted him right away. She said, show me some more stuff, bring me something else. In the end, I think Hattie Carnegie, we know who that is. She was, a, I guess, a, would you call her a couture? Fifth Avenue, yeah, not really. Kind
0: of- she was really interesting because her business model was so fascinating in American fashion at that point. We yet have we have mentioned her many times on the show, but we have yet to do a full length episode. But she was an American fashion brand. She herself was not a designer. Mm, she employed a ton of other people, like Claire McCardell and Norman Norell and Rudy Gernreich and even Muriel King. That like. Created the designs, but she had her own manufacturing operations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this makes perfect sense that maybe Gernrick was like selling her designs.
2: Well, he said, yeah, he said he would send her stuff. Yeah. And she would send him a check. Yeah. That's how it worked. She would, he would send her designs and he would say, then I would look at her line and there'd be like a detail there or, um, you know, a silhouette or something that she had borrowed from me. And then, but she would send him a check. So that's how he would get make, get paid. But then he ended up um, starting to make swimsuits. Swimsuits, I think, were the big thing for him. And um, the, the, it's, it is interesting. And again, like, I, I always feel like I could make too much out of this. Like, the people made things because they wanted to sell them. That's kind of how the industry works. But you know the, the the what was remarkable about the swimsuits was that they were, you know, no, they didn't have any cup, they didn't have a boning, they were sort of, you know, they were just knitted things.
0: Which was really unusual for the 1950s swim swimwear still had even kind of almost like lingerie type support systems built into your swimsuit.
2: And he from the from the first references that you see to him in places like Vogue you see that that was what was remarkable about him the stuff just didn't have any structure to it but as i noted and you know it was interesting when i i thought wow he was really making a statement about freedom but actually maybe but at the same time he was also making stuff that was also structured and boned for a he he signed a contract with this guy named walter bass
1: mm-hmm. and
2: they made a lot of clothing and then and the stuff that he made if you go look at it, actually FIT has some of it in their collection. It's really cool. It's really fun. But it's like, you know, it's of its time. It's not ahead of its time. It's of its time. And so, you know, that was kind of how he had that was the beginning of his career.
0: Yeah. And and you know, I think this is interesting just to point out too that, you know, you know, we talk about like decadism a lot. Like things don't just start at one point and end like immediately after. Even Lucille. Like, Lady Def Gordon, who, you know, herself promotes herself as abolishing the corset, decades later was still selling, like, girdles. And these are, like, highly structured garments. So, so you know, it's, it's sometimes with fashion and fashion advertising and fashion promotion and, you know, fashion myths, you just kind of have to take it. At its face value, and kind of like, okay, well, this was happening about then, and there were a lot of other people doing it, and they were also doing other things. Like, it, 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 there are no hard stops. It's fashion is always evolving, I guess, is what I'm trying to point
2: out. Well, I think that's what you said is really fascinating, April. And I think that it's particularly enlightening with Rudy Garnrich because I think what happened to him, and again, this is this is me, and and also uh, Peggy Moffat, at least in the New York, in the FIT um, history, I think he got caught up in the idea that he could sort of be different from other designers and just leave the actual time frame that he was designing in behind. You know, like, I'm going to be a seer and predict the future. Well, that's not really how fashion works, you know. Right. Um, but we can, we'll we get to that.
0: Yeah. and uh, So let's get right into it because it was really in, like in the next decade, in the 1960s, that his career exploded. Yeah. So what exactly was that thing that he was doing differently compared to his work in the
2: 1950s? Well, I think part of it was sort of a mundane contract thing because he had signed this contract with Walter Bass and he couldn't get out of it.
0: And Walter Bass was a manufacturer. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Clothing manufacturer. And I guess it would say, you know, if you bought a clothing from him and now I can't remember, I'm pretty sure you would see something. It would say Rudy Gernrich for Walter Bass. Or Rudy Germany for Harmon Mills. Mm-hmm. And then he really did not want to sign this seven-year contract, but I guess it was very lucrative. It was a lot, so that's a long time to be under contract to a manufacturer, but he did do it. And then in 1960, that contract ended and he started his own house. And I think that was what really, because he could now say, no, this is Rudy Germanrich for Rudy Gernrick, it, it was all different. And so in pretty soon, like immediately he started winning. What are now called CFDA awards, Council of Fashion Designer of America, but at the time were called the Cody Awards, and I don't remember what Cody stood for. Do you? It,
0: it, it's a cosmetics company, and still is. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. They were the officially the American Fashion Critics Awards, but uh-huh. it's the equivalent of the CFDA
2: kind mm, of right. as
0: as it would be now. They're not the same organization at all, and never were, but it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Mm. Big awards. It's like the Academy Award <laughs> for fashion, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what was it that he was doing that won him these awards that was so innovative and so fresh and so new on the scene?
2: You know, he just, I, I don't think it was like radical gestures, but, or they don't seem radical to us today. So, like in 1963, he wins this Cody Award for this suit. And the fashion designer, Norman Norman Norell, goes storming out of the, Cody. this is a little story. I love this story. Storming out of the Cody Awards. It's just, I'm returning my Cody Award. It doesn't mean anything anymore. So what was so radical? It was just a window, pane check wool, you know, separate suit. Uh, but one of the collars was notched and the other one was a shawl collar. Ooh.
0: Yeah. And, and what's so amazing about this is if you look at the picture, it seems like a very conservative-ish,
2: yeah. but,
0: but, but hip and fashionable early 1960s suit, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a short skirt. The skirt really kind of hits like just below the knee, even even maybe like a couple inches further. And it's like this check, it's very tailored as we would think of it now. But you don't even, I didn't, you don't even notice on first inspection looking at it now that one side of the collar is, you know, that kind of rolled, as you say, shawl collar and the other one has a check. But this was so offensive to that 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 somebody could potentially be so whimsical or playful in American fashion and wasn't taking itself too seriously mm-hmm. was kind of upsetting, obviously, to the old
2: guard. I think I think he was like, I think that's the right word for him. He was playful. I mean, I think his his stuff, these these knits that he made, these little short skirts, he was he was pushing the hemline up, obviously. Um, but people like Helen Gurley Brown. And other women really loved what he was doing. And the, the clothes are so cool. They're just so cool. They're so like early 60s wanting to be late 60s, right? Yes. They're they're fun. They're the beautiful colors. He always used this color called poison green. They just had this joyfulness to them. Um, so to me, in my mind, that's like sort of my favorite period of the Rudy Gernrich period. Just mm-hmm. so much creativity and pleasure.
0: You know, and I'm so glad you were saying, like, he was early 60s trying to be late 60s, because that is entirely how I always think about him, is that no matter where he was throughout his career, or especially during the 60s, his work is so much part and parcel to how we live today. It's just that he was so far ahead of his time, nobody knew what the hell to do with him. (laughs) You know, kind of type thing. I mean, not to say that he wasn't amazingly successful, but we'll get into this a little bit further in a minute. But I also want to talk about his relationship with Peggy Moffitt, who you already mentioned, and her husband, William, a.k.a. Bill Claxton, because they were partners in crime for a really long time. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about their working relationship?
2: Well, Peggy Moffitt was this uh, very gamine, boyish-looking woman, and um, those of you who love the '60s, you, you've seen her in Keskichu um, Kichu Palimugu, which is the, the fashion photographer William Klein's film, and also Antonioni's Blow Up. She has a little bit part in that. You know, she didn't have a big film career, but those—mean I if you're going to be in two movies, like those would be the movies to be in. Yeah. I mean, I think that. The, important thing about their their relationship aside from the fact that they clearly were very fond of each other really you know liked each other very much is the, is this shape that she had she was very boyish looking um, androgynous and skinny you know that was kind of the look of the 60s and again like this is this feels speculative to me but I wonder if in some ways, you know, in a sense, he became kind of um, stuck with this look because of this friendship. They became, his look became her look and her look became almost like the definitive Rudy Gernick look. Mm -hmm. You know, if you picture Rudy Gernrich, you're probably picturing her. And that's not really true. If you actually look at what was, where his pictures were appearing, he actually had a lot of pictures in Ebony, for example, it's kind of interesting. But there was she was certainly a very powerful influence and remains so because she did the book. She did the Rudy Gernrick book. Right. So when you look at these pictures which which Bill Claxton took of her wearing these clothes, it really looks like the Rudy Gernrich look. I think it's somewhat of a distortion. I don't think that's really true.
0: Yeah, but she was one of his models and muses, essentially.
2: Yeah, not the only one. You have to be really careful about that.
0: And and Barbara Flood, one of his other models, is going to join us on the podcast later this week. Cool to talk about her experiences working with him.
2: So the other model that he's that he dressed frequently was Leon Bing, if she comes. She'll we'll mention her later. She had an interesting story. Just so you, she wrote a book about the Crips and the Bloods called "Do or Die." It's like a journalistic book. I mean, it's a serious book. It was reviewed in the New York Times. So I mean, that's kind of that's an interesting. Fashion career to 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 think about
0: mm-hmm.
2: just as a sort of a footnote.
0: Now I want to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: out there. So in 1963,
0: 1964, Gernrich started working with this idea. And it's the one that you already referenced that for better or worse, kind of for fame or infamy would stick with him for the rest of his life, the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. And in part, he was working on this with Peggy Moffat, who was the initial model. But will you tell us what happened in 1964 that garnered him so much press attention?
2: Well, that was when Gernrich made the, the topless swimsuit, which is also called the monokini, And this is such a wonderful story. It's a really great story. Um, and it's, I think in some ways it was his downfall. And some people will feel differently about that. He was always in the press, he would always be talking to Sports Illustrated and Women's Wear Daily and Look and all these different magazines that were popular in the late 50s, early 60s. So he, had, he loved predicting. Like They, lo- they always want to hear, and they still do this, right? The, Tell us what the future is going to be for clothing. No one really knows, but they always pretend like they do, and there's money in that. So, so Gernrich said in two different interviews, you know, in the future, very soon, women will soon be walking around with their tops off. They will not have to wear tops at the beach. And so, this editor at Look magazine saw this, and she called him up, and she said, "You've got to make the swimsuit. You make the swimsuit. We'll take a picture of it." And at first, he said, "No, this is interesting." At first, he said, "No, I don't want to do that." But well, first of all, he said, "I'm I just. It seems like it'll. It's a risky move for me." But then he started to get worried that. Um, Emilio Pucci, the designer, would make one instead. He was worried that guy was going to get so. Again, he's calculating: how do I going to get ahead? Okay, maybe I can do this thing. So again, at first he said he said to this editor at Look magazine, "No, I don't want to make the suit." And she said, "Oh no, you've got to! I've already got approval from the front office." <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that's
0: a little bit of an underhanded dealing,
2: <laughs> right? Well, you know, it's just like it's like this is why this thing got made. It was the sort of contingency. So, is, this is interesting, too. The first, there was a first draft of the suit that didn't look like the monokini. It was very different.
0: I love this so much. I, I love those pictures. I mean, they're both amazing incarnations of it. But those pictures of Peggy wearing the first monokini, I'm just like, sign me up. Where do what? I buy one? How do <laughs> I
2: get it? It was more of like a sarong type of thing, and it just kind of went under the bust. -hmm. Um, But this is interesting. The the editor of Look said, "No, no, no, do it, redo it again." I see it needs to be this like an exclamation point, really simple. So that's what he ended up doing. It's sort of like this basic mayo swimsuit comes up to the waist, and then there's this tie that goes around the neck. Very simple, basic thing. They took a bunch of pictures of it, and actually, they took it to Diana Vreeland at Vogue. And he said, no, no, we're just doing this for editorial. She said, no, no, if you've got a picture of that thing, it's a real thing and you have to make it. So they did.
0: I think even like, didn't she, um, and you tell me because you are the Gernrick expert, not me, but I've heard stories where she actually kind of, he said no. And then she kind of went around his back, called a manufacturer. And then the manufacturer called him and said, hey, we're going to make your swimsuit. And he's like, (laughs) what the hell are you talking about? They're like, Diana Freeland." told us that we were going <laughs> to manufacture the swimsuit for you.
2: Wow. I haven't heard that story, but I sort of believe it. Again, there, was, there were, the, I think of this as a story. like in the end, what the story that was told was that you know, Rudy Gernreich was a futurist with a vision. but in truth, it was this kind of like a series of accidents that kind of made this thing come about. I think that's a better way to think about it. But what ended up happening for Look magazine, they finally ran this picture. The model was standing there with her back to the to the camera. She had her arms up, like it was a gesture of freedom. But like she had her back to the camera, it really felt seemed like a very compromised picture. Like someone had she needed to have the the, the cajones to actually run a picture of someone bare chested.
0: Yeah. So the whole point of it was that it was topless, but Look wouldn't run the front. They, would, they wouldn't show her breasts, basically, is what you're saying.
2: Right. Gernrich told Mary Lou Luther that this woman was standing on the side of a volcano and that she was a prostitute. But I think this is not true. Lane Nielsen said that was not true. It was just a, a, a model. Anyway, so Bill Claxton started taking pictures of Peggy wearing a suit. And the first image of her wearing it with her breasts exposed actually ran in Women's Wear Daily. Mm-hmm. and. This thing was picking up steam. More and more people were starting to hear about it. It was becoming a story, and then um, now I'm going to say, was it Time or was it? I want to say maybe was Life. It was Life. Right? It, was, it, was life. life it was Life. But but yeah. she had her breasts covered. I mean, you could see the shape of the suit, but she was covering her her breasts. This thing was the news, the fashion news story of 1964 and probably the 60s. I mean, there was just nothing more. You know, there were twenty thousand articles that appeared about this suit. I mean, the some Russian paper referred to it as the product of a decadent money bag society. And uh, women were actually arrested wearing it. Why you would be arrested wearing it, I don't know. But I mean, it's it's interesting. It's interesting to think like whatever gurnrick really felt about this garment, I think for him growing up, you know, he grew up in in Austria. If you go to Austria and you go to the beach, women are topless. This way, like, it's it's European. So I think for him, that really deep in him, was this idea that women should have the same freedoms as men should. Yeah. Um. It wasn't just a publicity gesture, but by then, by the time this thing, the, by the time the pictures ran in the magazines, it was out of control. But. But then you have to ask yourself, like, did it really sell? They sold. It's, I think I, I think I wrote in my thesis they sold three about three thousand of these things. They were twenty four dollars a piece, and they ran. They came in all different colors, so you could get them in gingham. You get a brown one. You get a black one.
0: I've seen a yellow one in person.
2: They're oh, very right. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a really fascinating moment for him, and certainly it was a turning point. It was it was the talk of of the fashion world uh, of 1960, certainly of 1964. That was all people could talk about. Although, Greenwick eventually said, you know, I think women will probably just wear it around their private pools. That's probably how it will actually get worn.
0: Like hanging out with your friends.
2: Yeah, yeah. Not like a big gesture like that.
0: And, you know, I want to come back to this point that you kind of just mentioned that I think Rudy definitely throughout his whole career and, and all of his, like, writings and everything and even what Peggy wrote or has said in oral histories, et cetera, et cetera, kind of like underscores the point that his the nudity ever seen in any of his designs wasn't sexual. Mm. This was really all about laying the playing field as equal between men and women. You know, it was it was about freedom. It wasn't necessarily about sexuality.
2: I think when, when he died, Harry Hay made this statement that uh, Gernick was always interested in ideas of freedom, including sexual freedom, and that that was what his clothes were trying to say. I, I still, I kind of want, like, I'm skeptical, but maybe, sure, maybe, could be. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I always feel like, yeah, but then you also have to sell stuff. You have to sell things. That's what the industry is for, you know? So, but yeah, I mean, I think maybe some of his ideas were, were that way. Sure.
0: Yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, let's just face it. The monokini did sell, but it wasn't one of his biggest sellers, and and, and neither neither were his. And we're going to get into this in a minute. His unisex collection or collections that he did a little bit later. So it's that's just like kind of like that theoretical kind of like maybe even a little bit activist mm-hmm. still undercurrent of his work. And, 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 you know, let's face it. He liked, he liked the shock and awe factor. He, he, he courted that in his work for sure.
2: This was sort of the heart of my thesis. And, and when I wrote the thesis, i I was rereading it. I, you know, finished this thing six years ago. I noticed how that I was angry. Like I was angry about this, that, uh, there was something about the industry really is not capable of handling radical ideas. It's just, it's it's just, again, it's so conservative. And I think this is what frustrated him in a Mm -hmm. way. He, I think he really did have radical ideas. I think he really was drawn to interesting ideas or radical ideas, you know, um, and radical ideas of social change. But again, like, again, you're talking about someone who's like, let's all have topless women at the beach. And that like that was really not something that was gonna happen for some time, you know.
0: Yeah. And and you know, it does in some places now, doesn't in some places in other places. But um, the, the monochini still remains, you know, his most iconic look. But but he also launched many other innovations that we entirely take for granted today, particularly in terms of undergarments. So how did he contribute to the modernization of the lingerie industry, particularly for women.
2: Okay. So this, this is really fascinating. He, um, he had a partnership with a um, lingerie company called Exquisite Form. And the, the year after he does the monokini, which is the famous garment, he did this thing called the no bra bra. And if you, it's really like a very simple bra. The, I've seen one. They're just, they're just like, it's like, a, a again, the stripping away of the, you know, the boning and the structure is very simple fastening in the back, simple bra. Gloria Steinem profiled him and she quoted this buyer on 7th Avenue who said, you know, when Rudy Gernrich made this bra, it made women look like women again instead of Sherman tanks. Yeah, Because if you could think about that late 50s bra with those, the, you know, very pointy breast shape, it, it he really... I mean, I, again, I, I always sort of wonder about like, is was he really the only person doing this? I don't know, maybe. But but it certainly was a very influential look, and and um, contributed to that change in, in in the shape.
0: Yeah, and especially into the nineteen seventies, because that really becomes the shape of lingerie. And he 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 was one of the first people to do the thong too, right?
2: Yes, he did make a thong. Yes. Uh, that was sort of in the, yeah, in the 70s. And in actually I saw a letter that Barbara Walters had written to him. Uh, I guess he wanted to have the thong shown on, I guess it was 60 Minutes or whatever program she was on at the time. She said, you know, this is, it's so exciting, but uh, it's not something we could show on TV any more than we could show the topless bathing suit on TV.
0: <laughs> but so much part today of many ladies' underwear drawer. So One of my other very favorite of his innovations was his use of text on garments. And of course we have seen text before this as a monogram or an element of personalization. But what I'm talking referring to here is his really early use as text as an all out graphic print all over the clothing. Would you tell us a little bit about his use of text and also some of the other prints that he used for his total look ensembles? Because the total look ensembles to me are the epitome, like the essence, you know, of Rudy Gernrich.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure what I can say about the text. Uh, sorry to say, I don't know that much about them, but I know the, um, the total look. This is considered a very innovative idea that you could go to a department store and you could get. Hose, uh, dress, undergarments, hat, accessories, shoes—everything by Rudi Gernrich.
0: and oftentimes in the same print.
2: Print, yeah, the same fabric, the same fabrication, yeah. I mean, a very um, forward, again, forward-thinking idea. I think in the end it didn't work because at the time, this—I mean, this is kind of kind of mind-blowing to think about, right? This is 1970, or it was 1960s. Sorry that he did those looks. Department stores really didn't catch up to this idea and have like boutiques for um, designers until later, like late 70s, early 80s. And I want to say that Martin Traub, the uh, department store guy, helped pioneer this idea. But I think, you know, just to throw this in there, at the time, you know, even until even in the late 60s, although Rudy Gernrich was, you know, had his name out there. And there were other designers that we now know of, Norrell, Pauline Treger, James Galanos. Um Claire McCardle and Elizabeth Hawes, who was a friend of Garnrich's.
0: Oh, I've I have written about this and I'm gonna write some more about this.
2: Oh uh, just say it. Oh uh yeah, they were they were best buds. And in fact they were the subject of an exhibition in, in the late sixties, sixties the in at FIT. Yeah.
0: 1969 or 1970, one of the two, I can't remember which.
2: You remember better than me. <laughs> really, I think fashion still was really centered around Europe and Paris. So Americans were still kind of like trying to get in there, you know? So I think that sort of conversation is, is happening. I don't know. I mean, you might have been able to go to um, maybe there was a space for Dior somewhere in New York that you could go to, but I guess not Not Rudy Germick, not Elizabeth Hawes. I don't remember when her atelier closed.
0: Well, so it closed in 1940 the first time. She got blackballed by McCarthy after all of her labor organizing during the war. She tried to relaunch late 40s, early 50s. And it was just like they had burned all of her bridges. No one wanted to touch her. And she also didn't want to participate in the new look.
2: So there was that. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't seem (laughs) like Elizabeth Hawes at all. No.
0: (laughs) She kind of bailed and like moved to the Caribbean for a while to Saint Croix. Good for her. Yeah. So going back to the total look, you you said that it didn't work. Why so?
2: Well, because at the time, if you want, like, this is how again, this is how department stores work. I mean, again, like this is this is a perfect example of how you might have a great idea as a designer, but if the industry isn't set up for you, your your idea isn't going to work. So at the time, if you wanted to buy your underwear, you had to go one part of the department store. If you wanted to buy your you know, your hose, you went to another part of the department store. If you went to, you you want your dress or your hat, they were all different areas. They didn't have them all collected in one space. So if you wanted to do a total look, you would have to go, you know, from department to department and and you couldn't really get a picture. Like, what would this really look like? I mean, maybe you could do it in a window, but it was, it was, it was, it was this kind of mundane crap that I think was very frustrating for him.
0: Yeah. So, you know, just to to paint a picture a little bit more about this. So, when I mentioned the use of text, so what I'm saying is, you know, your dress, your little skinny kind of like skin-tight dress might be printed with alphabet letters in a really kind of like bold, whimsical print. But then you would also have on the hose with the same print. You would also have on, potentially, gloves with the same print. You'd also potentially have on a hat. This is what we're talking about in Total Look. And also, you know, he used giraffe motifs mm, and right. and so many of these other just, like, really, as you even know, and at the time was noted, kooky, kooky
1: you know, yeah.
0: kind of kooky 1960s avant-garde thinking. I mean, it's really, really fun, I think. But also, it was a lot for someone to just, you know, head to toe.
2: You know, I think if anybody wants a real picture of this, what they should do is watch Basic Black, which is on YouTube. It's a short film that that um, Bill Claxton and Peggy Moffat and Leon Bing is in it, and, I, and maybe your, your guests will also have participated in this in some way. People who see this film, almost invariably they go, oh, that's fabulous, and it really is fabulous. But it's so 60s. You know, yeah. It's so strongly 60s. It really could not even translate to the 70s. It just doesn't feel like it. So I feel like, again, like this is really me. This is not fact. But I feel like he got sort of cornered by these ideas. They were great ideas for the 60s. But if you're trying to be a prognosticator and talk about the future, you don't want to be identified too strongly with one design. I mean, the irony is, and though he wanted to uh, be like a visionary and a seer, he was actually a great designer for the 60s. Really, really wonderful and so joyful and pleasurable to read, to see his stuff.
0: Well, and even Peggy, I think later in that, um, years later after his death in that oral history you mentioned that, that she gave, she kind of said one of the reasons why it didn't work was because he wasn't necessarily interested in making the clothes. He was just interested in making the ideas.
2: Yes. This was why I think I was angry when I wrote my thesis. I felt really sad. I felt like something bad happened to him. And this is something that Peggy Moffat said only in the oral history. If you read the, the Rudy Gernick book, you don't see this tone at all. Right. But she said she thought he was very unhappy for the last 15 years of his life. So he dies in 1985 of lung cancer. Mhm. And, you know, she said he wanted to have, he had all these ideas. He really wanted to have all these ideas, but he didn't really want to make clothing anymore. Making clothing is hard. It, it's about solving problems. It's about thinking like a designer is not the same as thinking like an artist. Um, thinking like a designer is not like thinking you know, like a, you know, a seer or a visionary, you have to be sort of involved in a sort of mundane day-to-day way with the way women and men also, of course, but he mostly did women's work. Women are going to actually wear your stuff. And that's, that is a very, very, it's exhausting. It's, it's, you know what it is. It's very, the, the, the industry is very limited. And what she said in this, in this oral history was, he had these ideas, like again, like one idea that he came up with, this was after he had shut down his atelier. He did a collection in which all the models came out wearing safari jackets and carrying rifles. So this was 1970 or 71. So a lot of radical ideas were out there. The, the Black Panthers, Kent State had just happened. So he's thinking about these violent ideas and he's having the models walk down the runway wearing clothes. And Peggy Moffat says in this oral history, She's, yeah, you can do that. You can do that. But then someone will say, "Peggy, can we see the first piece? We need something to sell." That's actually—I was going to call the, my thesis, "Peggy, can we see the first piece?"
1: <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I was
2: convinced not to because it wouldn't scan well. But, but I mean, I think that's a really key idea with Gerndrick.
0: Well, and, and also too, I can't remember if it was you or maybe somebody else writing on Gerndrick that pointed out that once you take the gun away, it's still a safari jacket. It's still just a
2: jacket. <laughs> you know, What you know, like it's not, it, it's not going to embody those radical ideas when you have to put it in retail. It just won't. And, and I think that must've been, I think in the end, this was kind of the idea that he had, this was, again, this is me speculating that when the, the topless bathing suit was, became such a big deal, he must've thought to himself. And then in three years later, he's on the cover of Time Magazine he was becoming a household name. He must've thought, wow, I can like really like set the future, put radical ideas in motion. But in truth, he couldn't really do that. He was just one person and he still was expected to just to make stuff that people could sell. Yeah, And I think that was, that must've been, if, if, if he was really obsessed with being a radical, that must've felt like uh, tough for him.
0: You know, and, 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 you know, so much of his oeuvre was, Early into his notoriety, maybe not necessarily early in his career, but early into his critical acclaim was celebrated. But then as time progressed, it, it became critiqued as too far out, too extreme. And I still say that he was just simply too far our Ahead of his time, because if you really think about it, you know, that total look that he was doing in the 1960s, that was something that Stephen Sprouse did mm-hmm. in the 1980s. Yeah. And even Stephen Sprouse doing that in the 80s was still too far ahead of his time. So
2: think about like um, genderless clothes. I mean, now we're really starting to see that happening. Mm-hmm.
0: And that was what that was something that him and Elizabeth Hawes really bonded over, because even though Gernrich was decades younger than her and had a big impact on her pers- on her personal life and his circle, becoming friends with his circle of friends. She had been espousing, quote unquote, what if men wore skirts in the 1930s?
2: Right. Uh, why not? Why the hell not? Why, 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 why shouldn't they? But this was such a conservative, I mean, again, it's America is so conservative in some ways. Um, you have these radical veins, but really.
0: I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, what is Gernrich's legacy to fashion today in the 19th century? What are, what are the things that he kind of gave us that we all take for granted?
2: You know, I mean, actually, one thing that I always think about with him, and I think is true, and maybe your your listeners will have their own opinions about this. He 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 loved to say this. He would say, "Fashion is going out of fashion. We're not going to have fashion anymore." <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> I mean, and and um, that. In 1970, almost doesn't make sense. He would say, you know, we're not gonna talk about fashion anymore. We're just gonna have clothes and gear. But um, in a way, that's sort of come true. Because I think if you look at how people are dressing now and how they dressed 20 years ago, I mean, is there really a huge difference? I mean, is fashion trend even something that can be applied to people in the same way? I, I don't think so. I think it's I think we now we've come to a place where you can sort of wear whatever you want. Yeah, you know. I mean, so in a way, I think he was right to point that out. But the fact is that the industry never, this industry still exists. You still have to make stuff. If you're not making stuff, you're not really a designer. You're just kind of like a, I don't know what you are actually. And interestingly, he, he said, you know, I'm not a philosopher, a pho- you know, I, I'm I'm a designer. But it, yeah, it seemed like he kind of, the, the categories were confused in a way in his mind. He did like, he did, you know this, right? He did this at some party or something, he, um, sent out these two naked models, totally shaved, you know, totally naked. That was his statement, you know, nakedness and, uh, and people were like, you know, what? Like <laughs> they couldn't understand that at all. So, but you know, it's, it's also, it's just kind of sad to think, you know, by 1973, he really wasn't, nobody was looking at him and saying, what's the future of clothing, Rudy? I mean, he, he was proposing things, but I think that he was, not really taken very seriously at all by the industry, and and I think I don't know if we've said this in the podcast yet. Like within a year of the Time Magazine cover, he shuttered his own atelier. Mm-hmm. He had these he had these partnerships with uh, a knitting mill, uh, and so there were still some knitted pieces that were coming out, but he really wasn't crafting clothing at all anymore after 1967.
0: And surprisingly, transitions into the gourmet soup industry.
2: Oh yes, and cl- and furniture. He did a line of furniture. I don't think I ever saw any of these. I don't know if it was just a prototype kind of thing, but yeah, he did a he did a book of his mother's soup recipes, and who knows,
0: doing other creative aspects. I think he got beat down. Yeah, I think he got beat down by like trying to talk about what his vision of the future was. And 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 there were little like really exciting little bursts of energy when, you know, his ideas like took off or were accepted or or were even derided. But overall, I, I think he just like you kind of have implied and and you know, Peggy has said, he lost steam because he was probably more of an artist thinker than he was really a fashion designer.
2: Mm,
0: mm. Or, or maybe he was confused about what he wanted to be. You know what I mean?
2: I mean, but that's so interesting because, like, like, to me, like, the clothes are so beautiful. Like, they're really great, you know? He had such an eye. He he really got color, his colors. I think, think, like, Michael Kors has, like, acknowledged some of his color choices and stuff.
0: Oh, my gosh. Agent Provocateur has ripped off all of his swimsuits. Really? Line for line.
2: (laughs) Fascinating. I'll
0: send you photos. It's kind of amazing. I even have a photo of Kate Moss wearing a monokini that was taken Mm -hmm. by... uh, paparazzi, and I'm pretty sure it was not a vintage monokini. I'm pretty sure it was like somebody remaking it.
2: Comme Garcon um, briefly did a few. They reissued some of his stuff, and I think Peggy Moffitt was credited with designing them. I don't know quite what that means, but they were they were his designs. Maybe she like oversaw them or something.
0: Oh, and well, is that like super recently? Because I was in openings, no, well, not opening ceremony. I was in Dover Street, and they had like things on the rack that had Rooney Gernrich labels. And my, friend really? Bliss and, yeah. and my friend Bliss and I were like, what? <laughs> like we're like pulling <laughs> everything up, like looking at it. I'm like, I had no idea.
2: That so. was, I think this must've been around 2012, 2013. Oh no, but I'm talking
0: been. like the last couple of years. Oh. Not long before the pandemic. So I will, I will get into this research friends and I'll put that in the outro.
2: Can I just say one last, one last thing, this this is this kind of fascinated me. In life, Rudy Gernrich is a character on Batman. Like he he was on Batman with Earth a Kid. So he was a known person. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He was, you know, a subject. And Harry Hay, his boyfriend, was an obscure person. Nobody really knew who he was. And in and then near the end of his life, right as uh as Rudy Gernrich is sort of winding down his career, Harry Hay founds a group called the Radical Fairies, um, which is a, just to shorten it to a cliche, which I hope no one will mind, it's gay hippies, like gay guys who go out into the countryside and dance around, take LSD, and again, I'm being very glib about something that people take very seriously. So I've often reflected on this, that in life, Gernrich is the famous one and Harry Hay is obscure. But the radical fairies are still very active. They are around. So they're still alive. He, he created something that was still alive. And he came up with this idea of the gay person as minority, which again, I think proved to be a very powerful idea. So I I, I don't want to say that one person is more important than the other, but I just kind of wonder, like, does, does one person, did Hay create a more lasting legacy than Rudy Gernrich? Maybe not. Maybe what you're saying is that Gernrich's ideas are going to keep coming up in, in retail. I kind of hope so. He was a, he was a cool guy.
0: Alex, thank you so much for joining us on Dress to talk about your work on Rudy Gernrich.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I, I, it was really fun.
0: Of course, of course. This was super fun. And he's like one of my all-time favorite designers. I don't have any of his pieces in my closet, but I endeavor to do so someday.
2: Yeah, me too. I, I could use a topless bathing suit myself. <laughs>
1: Alex, thank you so much for joining us to discuss Rudy and his incredible life and legacy. And wow, April, I am super surprised to learn that the brand was relaunched. I had no idea. I'm kind of holding my breath. I don't know what to expect with these relaunches. I never do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was relaunched in 2018. And the company mainly offers reproductions of Gernrich's iconic swimwear designs. Oh,
1: like monokini? Or. Yeah, there
0: is a monokini. <laughs> and there's also some really fun knits that, at the moment, the knits were designed by LA-based artist Lisa Ann Auerbach. And, and they're very much in keeping with the spirit of Gernwick's work. And, and even though the offerings of the brand are small, it's not like a huge collection, it is one of the rare exceptions of a relaunch that's been really done really, really well. It, it just, it works. So um, I have one question for you, Cass. Will you or will you not be rocking a monokini this summer?
1: I mean, now I quite possibly will be if I'm being perfectly (laughs) honest. I'm going to have to get on (laughs) the internet and check out this uh, incredible swimwear line.
0: Yeah, and, and it's not terribly expensive, too. I mean, let's face it. Some swimsuits are incredibly expensive. But the I would say these are, like, on the upper end of the mid-range. So, so it's, it's doable if you save some pennies. And I think I'm in. I've always kind of already wanted a monokini. Um, and now I'm kind of excited that it's only a click away. It comes in black ivory, and caramel. And also, um, just on one note that Alex made about Rudy's work within the gay rights movement and how important that was to him, Gernrich and his longtime partner, Areci Pucciani, they left their estate to the ACLU. So any of the portions of your purchases um, from the relaunch of the brand will go to support, as Gernrich wrote in 1975, quote, the furtherance of the protection and preservation of civil rights and liberties of gays and lesbians or general liberty purposes of the ACLU. Wherever, whenever, whatever, the bottom line is always human freedom.
1: And with these parting words from Mr. Gernrick, that does it for us this week, Dress listeners. May you consider where freedom resides in your closet next time you get dressed. And you're not going to want to miss Thursday's episode. I'm just giving you a little hint. This person who's joining us may know a thing or two about Rudy and his career and might have just known him in person. So super excited to have one of Gernreich's models and muses, Barbara Flood, on this show. So more Gernreich coming your way soon.
0: And you better bet we'll be posting lots of images of his work on Instagram this week at dress underscore podcast. Well, we always post images to accompany each week's episodes. And if you would like to write to us, you can DM us um, there on Instagram.
1: Or of course, you can also email us at dress at iHeartMedia.com. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday.